electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Don't count out a January rate cut. One in January. That's according to one of our guests. He's here with what has to happen for that to happen and what it means for the rally if things don't pan out that way. Plus, a trillion dollars in commercial real estate loans set to mature by the end of next year. We've all heard about it. It'll create both pain and opportunity, and we'll check back in with one private credit player who's got a front row seat to it all to tell us his strategies. And Berkshire's bet on BYD is certainly paying off as the Chinese automaker is on track to overtake Tesla as the global EV leader. Might have happened already. Any day now, any moment, Tesla shares shrugging it off, but we'll look at whether that can last. Before all that, though, let's start with today's markets. I still see green on our screens, Dominic Chu. There is, but it's very modest. And even the red, if there is any, is very modest as well. It's been a very tight trading range so far today, to Kelly's point here. The S&P 500 currently sits at 47.74. It's pretty much unchanged. I mean, up, down by maybe just a few points. Overall, very tight trading range today. At the highs of the session, the S&P was up just six points and down five points at the lows. So it's been, again, very modest, very calm right now to kind of close out the year. The Dow Industrials, 37,611, up about two-tenths of 1%, and just about flat on the session for the NASDAQ Composite, 15,076. One place we are seeing some more activity on a relative basis is in the interest rate complex, specifically when it comes to the benchmark 10-year Treasury note yield, which is currently just a little before, a little below 3.82%. At the lows of the session so far today, just a hair above 3.81%. It's important because the superlatives still take us back to the summer, in this case here, going back to roughly July. So, again, the lowest rates that we've seen on the benchmark 10-year note yield since July. It has an effect on a lot of parts of the market, mortgage rates and everything else. So keep an eye on that. And even more so activity on a relative basis has been the action in cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin specifically. It's up 2% right now, 43,068. Remember, at these cycle highs, it was almost at 45,000, depending on which exchange you look at. Marathon Digital is up on the day, 11%. MicroStrategy up 8%. Coinbase is up 7%. And Robinhood Markets up 4% as well. That's all part of that crypto ecosystem. And again, to put some of this in context, these are massive moves. But check out on a year-to-day basis. Bitcoin's up roughly 150%, 160%, you can see there. But MicroStrategy is up 360% in that same span. And Marathon Digital, which is a Bitcoin miner, up about 776%. And by the way, Kelly, MicroStrategy and Marathon Digital, two of the most highly shorted stocks in the market right now. So as we talk about some of the drivers there, keep an eye on those. And by the way, Kel, if you want more on that story, just head over to CNBC.com. We've got a whole layout on just how much Bitcoin has been driving the action in some of these leveraged plays in the stock market. I'll send things back over to you. Those players, a key part of the melt-up we're seeing, Dom, thanks. Stocks broadly are on track for a ninth straight week of gains, with the S&P trying for its first record close since January of 2022. My next guest 
Democrats are fading the bullish consensus, though, and see rate cuts coming for all the wrong reasons. Joining me now are Paul Christopher, head of global market strategy at Wells Fargo Investment Institute, and Joe Lavornia, chief economist at SNBC Nico Securities America. Welcome to both of you. It's good to see you. And Joe, I'll just Thank start you. with you. Um, what, 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 you know, what gives you the conviction to kind of stay on the glass half empty side of things these days? Hi, Kelly. Nice to see you. Two factors. Number one, the yield curve, twos, tens, is still deeply inverted, uh, basically now by a record if you look at daily data. So that's one factor. And related to that is the leading economic indicators, which are now down 20 months in a row, about 8% year on year. And those two variables, those two series have always been very predictive of recession. Okay. So the, and Joe, what about those who sort of say, listen, Yield curve inversion, post-pandemic, it's a different kind of cycle. We've been through manufacturing recession. We've been through a housing downturn, but they're not all lining up, and we're going to get through this without the economy experiencing a down business cycle. That is possible, but if that were to happen, Kelly, the yield curve is so inverted that the Fed has to cut 100 basis points more than what's even priced into the market. If that curve stays inverted, even though yields have come down, you will continue to see banks tighten their lending standards. So credit availability will not be present if that curve remains inverted. So if the Fed cuts massively and aggressively, maybe we get the soft landing. But the market's saying we're going to have a bumpier landing than what people think. It's so interesting, too, because from that point of view, it would argue for massive Fed action here. And instead, everyone's kind of talking about them taking a victory lap. Kind of related to this, gentlemen, just hold on for one moment. The five-year auction, top of the hour, the results are in for that. And we've seen bond yields continuing to sink towards their session lows. Steve Leisman is following it for us. And Steve, if you can, uh, tell us what the action was, how to go down. I mean, I think it's a decent auction. Um, we'll wait till Rick comes back next week to put a grade on it. But I have the dealers at 14%. That is below last time, uh, the 1127 auction, which was 16.8. I've got the directs at 15%. Let me double check that, 15.4%. That's below last time. And the reason is the indirects, Pretty strong bidders here, 70% versus uh, 65% at the last auction. Um, and that is um, uh, above, by the way, that is above the six auction average, which was 67%. Bid to cover 250 above the last auction at 246, um, but a little bit below the uh, six auction average of 252. So I think it's a good auction. I'm not seeing any action in the Treasury, uh, Kelly, here that makes me think it's a bad auction. The high bid was 380, and the um, uh, Treasury at the five year at the time was trading at 381. So we'll let smarter people like Joe Lavornia tell me if this was a, a bad auction, a B auction, a C auction, or a D auction. But uh, from what I can tell on the way the market is behaving, it looks like the government was able to sell something like $58 billion in five-year paper in a not-too-shabby way. You no, know, Rick better watch out, Steve. I think you're doing a great job with these. Uh, so I'll turn to Paul <laughs> nah, Christopher. <laughs> no, 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 no. Rick can have that job. He, can, he knows what, what is good and bad. I'm going to give this a B- minus because the bid to cover was below the six auction average, but it was still not too shabby. And uh, again, this is $3 billion higher than the last auction. So... Exactly. The government keeps pacing this paper, and people keep paying relatively low yields. I did go back and check. Um, the last time we did a five-year auction, they sold it at 441. So do the math at 380. That's 61 basis points lower than the last time we were at this. So 
I don't know, seems pretty good to me. I think our deficit problems are solved uh, with, with that. Paul, let me turn, and Steve, stay with <laughs> us if you, if you will. Paul Christopher, I think the verdict from, you know, just look at the 10-year, which just so our audience knows what that chart is showing, is below 380 now, so about 3799. That's a pretty clear verdict that uh, the market is more and more at peace with the way that uh, the Treasury supply is being taken down, I think. Yes, absolutely. And uh, great to see you again, Kelly. Uh, it's a remarkable decline in the 10-year yield, really, in, in longer-term yields across the board. But bought at the at the cost of what to the Treasury? Uh, if you're going to sell a whole lot more short-term paper bills at higher rates, uh, and then you have more spending coming online uh, next year, how are you going to continue to finance that much of your debt at these, at these uh, you know, uh, short paper uh, sorts of percentages, I think you're gonna have to move more into those longer dated treasuries. And at that point, those bid to covers are gonna start to increase again. And that's when you're gonna start to see yields rise with questions for the stock market. Paul, we mentioned this off the top, but are you more cautious about markets in the economy? Yes, we're on. We're kind of seeing things the way Joe is, and, and that the the one thing that for sure we see going going into 2024 is a slowing economy, uh, and the leading indicators are pointing that way. The uh, the inverted yield curve continues to point in that direction, and we're particularly focused on the consumer. Who, wow, great holiday sales, but what do you got left in the tank, consumers? Uh, what sort of savings do you have? What sort of room is left on those credit cards? And right. are you really going to go into your home? For a, for a lot of home equity with mortgage rates and this high. And by the way, I don't know if 3.1% year-on-year is really that great. What that's Steve, isn't that basically the inflation rate? Yeah, pretty much right there. It depends on how you measure it. Uh, if you want to look at uh, uh, three-month or six-month annualized rates, it's, it, it's a bit lower, but that is the year-over-year rate. Yeah, so I guess in real terms, if, if the MasterCard, these are MasterCard spending polls data, they say sales are up 3.1%, which was less than their initial estimate. And again, maybe that's a couple ticks over where the inflation rate. So in real terms, we probably grew sales less than 1% from a year ago. But Paul, yeah, I'm, I, I go wanna, ahead, Steve, go ahead. I want to comment real quickly on that, Kelly. Yeah, which is that we, we did do record TSA uh, flying. I, I wouldn't give a verdict on the consumer until I saw the service side of this thing. Um, people got a lot of stuff. It includes I know that's restaurants. Not a, an official economic. It? it includes restaurants. It does include restaurants and, and through the retail the retail number. Um, I actually don't know if the MasterCard number does. I assume it does. In any event, the point is that um, if, if you want to just look at the retail side of things, it's um, it, 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 it's one piece of the puzzle. It's the service side of things where I think there was an awful lot of spending this uh, this holiday season. That's very fair. What would you say to that, Paul, to those kind of obvious signs that there's still momentum uh, to the Goldman case for next year that we're going to just see continued labor market gains, falling inflation, real spending power take us through a year end without a, a worse downturn? And even to the leading indicators you mentioned, I'm starting to get kind of upset at them because it's been, you know, 15 <laughs> months for some of these, like the ISMs and the LEIs. And at some point, they're going to have to turn a quarter, aren't they? Well, let's talk about services for, for, then for a second, because the, the problem, the real issue we have is that the more you pump money into services, the more you're going to have hiring and the more you're going to have wage gains. And the more you have wage gains, the more you're going to have that services component of the CPI and the PCE go up. How can the Fed then cut rates? If the economy's that strong, they can't really do that. If the economy weakens and they cut rates, then are consumers going to come right back with their resilience and spend a lot more on services? If so, then you're going to get wages right back up at 4% and inflationary figures too. The only benefit inflation's really had 
is from goods, which is coming from deflation in China. That's not a statement on how resilient or how strong the U.S. economy is. So wage, wage, wage gains and Fed cuts, they just don't go together. Joe, could you jump in on this as well? Sure. I mean, uh, most of the consumer excess is in goods spending. It's about 8% above its pre-COVID trend. And I'm expecting eventually that good spending will come back to trend because one, rates are higher, credit's less available, and we've pulled a lot of spending forward. We've satiated ourselves, if you will, on, on, on durable goods. We can only buy so many appliances, furniture, we can only do so much home renovation, et cetera. The service numbers have been strong, as Steve was alluding to. They're back at their pre-COVID trend. But I do expect the consumer to moderate. And the other point I want to make is consumer spending can be really, really strong until it's not. It's a great proxy of where the economy is right now. It tells us nothing about where the economy is going. And all you have to do is go back and look at the deep recession of 0809. Spending was booming right up to when the economy rolled over and went off a cliff. I just want to mention, Steve, as well, that your, your auction results are helping the whole market right now. The Dow's up about 132 points, so we're pretty much near session highs. Thank you for not making me interject on that. I did want to make sure people saw what happened here. I think it's so interesting that the stock market was waiting for the light to change on the bond market, whether it would change or not. Um, we have been following this now, I don't know how long, Kelly, like several months now, where these auctions have been a catalyst for gains in the stock market mm -hmm. or whatever the opposite of a catalyst is. Maybe the uh, chemists who are watching will, will write in. Um, but it's interesting that that has been something that the market wanted it all clear from to see how the government would, you know, somebody made a joke. It's like that joke of Yogi Berra. Nobody goes there um, uh, because it's too uh, it's too crowded. Um, we, we can't sell. Uh, the, the debt came in at 380 um, and there's just so much of it that nobody apparently is buying it. But the big story here, and I'm just wondering what's going on is is that indirects which is the foreign bidders coming in at 70 percent five percentage points higher than the last five-year note i'm wondering if the foreign buyers are going to are getting a taste for the longer end um what we did know kelly i don't know if you remember the period of time several months ago we were reporting this every bond manager we had was short duration hmm. and when they came on this show and said they were going higher uh, in duration, they all were going higher in duration to a point that was below the average of the index of duration that they were following. So nobody was at duration, even the bulls when it came to the bond market. So it is interesting to think, um, who are the buyers here? Well, of course you have, you know, some guys are in the insurance business and the pension business, um, maybe hedge funds, but also these foreign buyers who were all I think across the board, short duration, now maybe trying to scramble and catch these yields before they don't have them to catch anymore. And Joe, what would you add to that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it was just, wasn't that long ago people were saying how uh, there was too much debt and rates were going to go up a lot higher, which, which didn't make a whole lot of sense. Paul mentioned earlier about short-term funding. He's exactly right. In the last year, we've had about 80% of all uh, net marketable supply occur in the bill sector, very little in coupons. Uh, supply creates its own demand. We're seeing that in the market. Our work has shown, though, when the Fed pivots and the Fed cuts, it's the five-year sector that leads the market lower. As we get more supply out the long end and as the Fed cuts, the yield curve will steepen. It'll be a bull steepening. That will be healthy. That'll be a good sign. The problem is the Fed hasn't cut yet, and I believe the market's got a lot of Good news priced in. When I say good news, I mean the equity market. All right. Paul Christopher, I'll give you the last word. 
Yeah, absolutely. A lot pulled forward, not just in terms of what the consumers are doing on the spending side, but that expectation of five rate cuts uh, and starting in January uh, <laughs> or, or even March, uh, that's just too soon. We're, we're still tied up with that services, wages, inflation dynamic. It's going to take longer and the Fed won't be able to cut as much as the market thinks next year. Let's see. But I think there's going to be some volatility in these first months of the year. Uh, would you agree, though, Paul, with Joe, that if the Fed did cut more deeply, that you'd feel better about prospects in, of the, for the economy? Well, only if only if we get to a bottom in the economy and we don't think we're there yet. Uh, you can't really cut right now with the economy still as resilient as it is. So it's going to take time for all of this to happen. By the time that bottoming happens, it might be the middle of next year. There's not that much time to cut rates, rates really, unless you have a recession. Steve? Yeah, I was with Joe and Paul on this. I thought the market was being reckless. But then Goldman came out with, did you see their forecast? I quoted it this morning, Kelly. We had, we had it yesterday a little bit that they are calling for cuts beginning in March and then successive cuts beginning in March. I can see the market being reckless. I have a hard time thinking <laughs> that the economists over at Goldman Sachs can be quite as reckless as the market can be from time no, to time. No, I agree with you. They've gone from being on the conservative side of things to, you know, like right. a swashbuckling, you know, dovish dragon <laughs> or something. Gentlemen, we'll leave it there. Uh, we appreciate your time today, Paul Christopher, Thanks, Joe Kelly. Livornia, and our own Steve Leisman. The uh, effect of all of these falling interest rates are that mortgage rates are back down to their lowest level since May. And we've already seen home prices jumping as a result. Let's get the latest read from Diana Olek. Diana, where are we now? Well, so Kelly, rates peaked in October and then began to slide in November and positively plummet in December. Today, the average rate on the 30-year fixed came in at 6.61%. According to Mortgage News Daily, that is a new low for the cycle, but it's really, really super close to where it was at the start of this year. And what a year it has been for rate volatility. Now, the home builders, however, held very strong despite all that volatility. Check out the ITB Home Construction ETF. Rose steadily through the year. It did take that hit in October when rates went over 8%. But check out the recovery, now up close to 70% year to date. Big builder names like Lennar, DR Horton, and Pulte have been benefiting not just from the drop in rates, but from the extremely low supply of existing homes for sale. They were also able to help customers by buying down those high mortgage rates a few months ago. They didn't really lower prices much, but made the all-important monthly payment more affordable by buying down the rates. So we did see a boost in single-family housing starts in November, up 18% month-to-month as rates came off those 20-year highs and builder sentiment also bounce back, although it is still well into negative territory. I'd be interested to see where it starts the year, Kelly. Indeed. And now, I mean, day by day, we're seeing rates that if this weren't kind of the, the slowest part of the selling, imagine if we were seeing this kind of downward velocity in rates during the middle of the spring season. Right. I mean, that would be incredible. We are in the dead zone for the housing market. Some people say, oh, go out and buy in December. You won't have any competition. But there's nothing for sale and nobody buys in December. So <laughs> I'm interested to see, though, if that spring market pulls forward, because we've seen that happen a lot before. When rates come down, people say, wait a minute, there's a little coming on the market in late January. Maybe the spring season comes forward as people want to get in before the rush and then the rush begins. Yeah, you know this, but we bought in August because we didn't know any better. And, um, <laughs> you know, I think in, I think it worked I, out. We're like, wow, a lot of these houses aren't so great. 
<laughs> I think I told you something about that. You did. I remember correctly. Great advice. So go big. Anyway, Diana, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Our Diana Olek. Coming up, survive until 2025. That's next year's motto for commercial real estate, according to my next guest. But with the industry potentially facing a trillion dollar crisis, which parts of it are most at risk? We'll get one private lender's view next. Plus, goodbye Tesla, hello BYD. The Buffett-backed Chinese EV maker is reportedly set to surpass Tesla in sales. But as BYD expands in Europe, it's still stuck in wait-and-see mode here in the U.S. We'll look at whether that could change. As we head to break, here's a look at the markets. Much more bullish tone than we saw just 19 minutes ago at the top of the hour after that strong auction result for five years we just were discussing. The Dow is now up 110 points. The S&P is positive by 7. The Nasdaq's up 30. And the exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Our next guest has had a front row seat to both the pain and opportunity in commercial real estate over the past year. And with a trillion dollars worth of loans maturing by the end of next year, he sees the motto as being survive until 2025. Joining me now is Ron Eliasaf. He's Northwind Group's founder and managing partner. Ron, it's good to check in with you. Are, are, are these busy days, quiet days? What's it like right now? Thank you, Kelly. Uh, end of year is usually more quiet, although we've seen a lot of loans uh, that needs to get done before year end. Um, as you said, 24 is going to be a challenge for many borrowers on commercial real estate office, but not only there, but also in residential multifamily loans that are coming due that were done in prior years at very different metrics than what we're seeing in the market right now. We were talking to someone recently. I know you're in the New York City area and, and they were kind of bearish on New York City. Um, uh, real estate, uh, residential real estate, because of some tax problems, rule changes, just difficulty in kind of incentivizing investment. Is that part of what's going on? That part is true. New York is challenging on a regulatory environment. We're actually, on the contrary, quite bullish on New York residential, hmm. mainly because of the significant lack of new supply. Because of these constraints, regulatory uh, post-COVID um, limitations, high financing costs, still very high cost of land and high cost of labor and material. There's just a, an immense shortage of new supply in New York. So we actually think residential is set to do quite well and will probably hold prices in 24. Not so much for commercial office properties, especially B-class, and not so much also for multifamily properties in other regions of the country where 
oversupply has been built in the last few years. And that was what our guest yesterday talked about was that, you know, there's Florida condos more in the luxury space where they're already seeing some supply guts, some some pricing pressure. We've even heard some caution from our uh, our REIT analyst about the Sunbelt real estate markets that he thinks were overbuilt. Definitely. We see that as well. We recognize that as well. And we're seeing uh, concessions rise, meaning landlords are giving more free rent to tenants to incentivize them uh, in order to keep um, the prices of, of the apartments. Uh, so definitely there's oversupply in certain sectors. Nashville is, is one city and we recognize oversupply being built, some parts of Atlanta, some parts of, of Florida as well. Hmm. Uh, but I think the most important point to notice for 24 is where you had all these loans that were given three, four years ago at you know, 60, 70% loan to value where interest rates were two, maybe 3% all in. Now they're gonna be, need a refinance where cost of borrowing is double. Uh, and then the coverage won't, won't hold up, meaning it will be very hard for the banks that gave those loans to see their loans uh, fully paid off, which means more equity will need to be injected by borrowers and some of them will just not be, not be able to do it. What about so you guys? So you see a high level of delinquencies and, and, and defaults. Where would you step up into the market and provide capital? We typically provide the senior tranche financing, typical standard bridge loans, up to three-year term uh, to bars um, that uh, meet our criterias. Uh, recently, uh, and surprisingly, it's been much higher caliber bars than we've seen, I would say, four or five years ago. Hmm. We're seeing private equity firms, family offices, even uh, pension funds, insurance company managers that simply need uh, uh, more time. They need a bridge until they can get uh, a new permanent financing in place. And that's what we're providing and other debt funds like us. Why aren't the banks providing it? And for what kinds of projects do they need this liquidity? Listen, the banks, in, in, even in 23, they've been on, on the sidelines ever, ever since Silicon Valley crash, you know, uh, Signature Bank, First Republic. We're seeing banks stop completely or limit in a significant way their exposure to real estate and lending in general, um, focusing on their own current books, um, solving issues in their current loans. So we've been filling the gap uh, that banks have left in 23, and that's going to be the trend for 24 as well. They're still not stepping up. And so when these companies, whether it's a private equity firm or an insurance company or you name it, when they're coming to you for capital, uh, what is their, what kinds of projects are they looking to finance? And what is their hope that rates keep falling by the next time they might have a loan coming due? It's not just the rates falling. It's the entire you know, macroeconomic setting that, that will be better that will enable them uh, to get better long-term financing. Um, they're coming to us. We, we finance mostly residential properties, um, both uh, multifamily rentals and condo um, buildings, for sale condos. That's been, I would say, about two-thirds of our loan book. We're, we've been also very active on the healthcare sector, financing senior housing, still nursing properties across the country. Um, we haven't done an office loan in the last three years. Wow. That's probably going to remain for us the same situation. One caveat is office to residential conversion loans, which we, we are looking at, and it's a market we think will, will be very significant in 24. All right, Ron, thanks for joining us uh, with the front row seat, as mentioned. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Ron Eliasef from the Northwind Group. Still to come, some inter- uh, internet, some stock valuations have gotten out of hand during the S&P's eight-week winning streak. Up next, we'll look at where you can still find some value in this market. And as we head to break, here's a look at some of the companies hitting new 52-week highs today. We're talking about Meta, Amex, Intel, and Blackstone. The exchange is back after this. 
Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome back to The Exchange. Is the market overvalued after this eight-week surge we've been on? Could be nine now. Dom Chu is here with a closer look in today's sectornomics. Dom? Well, it's interesting because it's all relative, right, Kelly? Over the last five years, the S&P 500 has traded on average with about 19 and a half times forward earnings, the expectation. Where are we right now? Just about 19 to 19 and a half times forward expectations for earnings. So if you want to use that as a Way to say under or overvalued or just about right. Some would say on a five-year basis, we're just about on average for forward valuations. Now, that begs the question, are there certain parts of the market that have a premium valuation or a discount valuation? So let's take a look at the premiums first. Maybe no surprise that growth-oriented sectors or those kinds of connotations top the list of premiums. Technology trades at 26 and a half times forward earnings expectations. Consumer discretionary, 26 times forward earnings expectations. And then industrials, just about 20 times forward earnings expectations there. The premiums, the discounts on the other side, maybe no surprise there. Value-oriented, more defensive sectors. Utilities, 15 and a half times. Financials, 14 and a half times. And energy, 11 times forward earnings expectations. As for which sector could be a key focus going into that 2024 season, we asked some experts out there, and of course, one of the names that comes to mind is Mohammed al who says, from his standpoint, tech will remain the most intriguing sector as a test of its transformational secular themes and all-weather resilience as an indicator of whether 2023's spectacular market rally can broaden and then deepen its reach. And just to give you an idea of just how spectacular it was for technology, Kelly, take a look at the relative performance of the Spider ETF that tracks technology versus the broader S&P 500 XLK, 55% upside, the market 25%. That's a lot of outperformance. We'll see if it continues, Kel. I'll send things back Interesting over to you. Interesting to see industrials trading at that premium as well. There you go. Dom, thanks. Dom Chu. To Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Kelly, great to be back. Uh, thank you very much. The Israeli Defense Force said today the country's Air Force conducted a, quote, raid on Lebanese territory. According to the statement, fighter jets targeted military sites that Israel says belong to Hezbollah. The IDF said three enemy aircraft were also seen crossing over the border and claims that rocket shells were launched from Lebanon toward Israel. Fighting on Israel's northern border with Lebanon has been escalating over the past several weeks. Special Counsel Jack Smith filed a motion today seeking to block former President Trump from making political arguments and referring to the conspiracy theories during his federal election interference trial. Smith is also asking the court to prohibit Trump from telling the jury that Others are to blame for the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And people with food allergies may get relief from a new treatment. Data from a clinical trial found that adolescents who were given the drug Zolaire were able to consume higher doses of foods without triggering an allergic reaction. The drug has also reduced allergic asthma attacks and hives in clinical trials. That could be help for millions of families. Kelly, back to you. Fascinating. Tyler, thanks. We'll see you soon and welcome back. 
Coming up, Tesla shares have more than doubled this year, but the company is about to be overtaken in global sales by Chinese EV maker BYD. Up next, we'll look at whether it's just a speed bump for Elon Musk or a real turning point in the EV race. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. Tesla shares are higher today on reports it's preparing to launch a revamped version of the Model Y from its Shanghai plant. Street also expecting Tesla to report record deliveries in its earnings report in just about a month. But it may not be enough to keep Tesla on top, as Chinese automaker and Berkshire favorite BYD is reportedly on track to surpass Tesla any day now as the global EV sales leader. Joining me now with what that means for Musk & Co. is Canaccord Genuity's George Giannarikis. George, it's great to see you again. Welcome. Thanks for having me on and happy holidays. I'd love you to tell uh, tell us what you think about BYD. I mean, do you think they are more innovative, more disruptive, quicker to respond? You know, are they the, the new Toyota of the 1980s? And how big a deal is this potential crown they're about to take? You know, it's a great question. And like people say, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And so we've talked a lot about being a Tesla being the new Apple. And when the smartphone industry first started, you know, Apple kind of had 100% market share because they were the first one to market with a true smartphone. It's the same thing for Tesla. As the market matures and the EV pie grows, Asian competition came into the smartphone market. Same thing is happening into the EV market. And eventually, you know, Tesla will likely be overtaken from a unit perspective. But what's most important and we think Tesla will win over time, is the profit share battle. Hmm. But look, today, Apple doesn't have the most unit market share in smartphones, but it overwhelms the market in terms of profit share. And we think ultimately that will be what's most important for Tesla, and we think that'll happen. You have a buy rating on Tesla, $267 price target, but um, is Tesla making cars more profitably than BYD does, and do you expect that to continue? What Tesla has to do, and so this year was the tale of Tesla cutting prices, impacting their gross margins. We think there was an intent to that, and that over time, they expect to sell a lot of full self-driving FSD software to people who already own their vehicles. That's a big key to the story, because right now, their profit margins have suffered, but we think that's with a long-term plan in place to sell FSD software the same way Apple sells services. And so ultimately, we think it's through FST software and through the vertical integration that Tesla is the best in the world at. It will ultimately result in higher than average uh, gross margin and profits for their EVs relative to anyone in the marketplace. If Tesla's infrastructure in manufacturing is leading edge, why have I read detailed profiles about how BYD's is better? Look, BYD has some competitive advantages. They have a, a base that's purely in China. Tesla operates in the United States, in Europe, but Tesla's putting things together from a manufacturing perspective that are way beyond what other companies have done. I mean, they're, they're building these molds in their vehicles for the Model Y, for example, this giga casting that basically essentially breaks down a vehicle into only a few parts versus hundreds or even thousands before that. They're way ahead of the, of the curve and ahead of their competition and learning how to manufacture efficiently at scale and innovating in places that other companies are just trying to catch up. Now. But will they be hamstrung by the relatively limited number of models that they offer? It's a great question. Look, ultimately, right now this year, they'll be in and around 1.8 million, about the same as BYD. We expect that to grow a lot in the future. We'll see what they say about 2024 on their earnings call. But we expect this company to be in 
the tens of millions of units over time. And I think they're planning the same. Look, when Tesla had an analyst day in March, they talked about removing some things from their production line, like, you know, like rare earths, uh, in order to make sure that they can scale up to this tens of millions of units. So that's their ultimate goal here. And when they get there and they're able to sell additional software to vehicles, uh, we think that'll create a huge improvement in their gross margin profile over time. Finally, do you ever think we would get to a point in which a U.S. administration would allow basically or make more competitive Chinese EV imports? And I, you might say, well, why would they ever do that? They might do that if they don't love Elon Musk. <laughs> For instance, they might do that if they want consumers to hasten the EV revolution, which appears to be stalling out and get cheaper priced EVs. China certainly would offer that. They might do it if China puts more pressure and says, well, your automakers can only sell here if we can sell there. Look, uh, that's a really great question again. I personally find it very hard to believe that we'll see an infiltration of Chinese EVs in the marketplace. There are other companies that are interesting. First, there's our homegrown Rivian. We're big fans of that stock and their prospects, particularly in North America for the foreseeable future. And there are other countries and companies that are making hay. And look at, there's a company called VinFast from Vietnam a recent uh, DSPAC that's very interesting and could take the place of some of these Chinese EVs coming to U.S. shores. Hmm. Well, George, either way, uh, for now, we appreciate you knowing, knowing all of this, still making the case for Tesla. Uh, thanks for joining us today. It's good to see you. Yeah, George Generikis with Canaccord. Coming up, shares of Apple are now eking out a gain after being allowed to continue selling the Apple Watch for now at least. But they're about 2.5% below the 52-week high they hit less than two weeks ago. And another key design executive is leaving the tech giant. We'll dig into that brain drain next. Welcome back. Is Apple losing its shine amid the rise of AI? A top Apple executive now joining a secret hardware project led by Johnny Ive and Sam Altman. Let's bring in Steve Kovac for the details in today's tech check. Steve, what do we know? Yeah, uh, not much beyond that OpenAI is working on, I don't know, some kind of secret hardware AI thing. But look, we knew Johnny Ive was already involved via his independent design company called Lovefrom. That's the company he started after he left Apple. But Bloomberg reporting yesterday, Tang Tan, he's the recently departed Apple designer in charge of iPhone and Apple Watch design. He's now joining the project. No idea what they're working on, of course, but thematically on the Apple side of things, this is really interesting because you have the hottest company in Silicon Valley tapping Apple's legendary designer to make some kind of new AI product. Lots of changes and departures also have been happening in the design team at Apple since I've left in 2019. Loveform, by the way, was contracted by Apple for some design work. That's over now, and now they're free to work on other competitors. Also, the design team is currently being run by COO Jeff Williams, and he has a great reputation, but it's more of an operator role, kind of like CEO Tim Cook, than some sort of product visionary that typically led the design teams. And that says a lot about the state of Apple now. It's a very mature market for phones and watches and computers. I've took part in developing all those things, including the Vision Pro, which is expected to launch um, early next year, but nothing brand new really on the horizon that'll need that famous Apple design mojo, let's call it. So. Really interesting, uh, just thematically, what's happening in Silicon Valley right now with this hot Silicon Valley startup taking Apple's playbook to, you know, kind of build the next wave.
In speaking of OpenAI, we've got some big news on that front today. New York Times filing a lawsuit against them and Microsoft. Implications? Yeah. Oh, implications are crazy. So uh, I think we have some examples here from the lawsuit. Really interesting evidence they're showing. The Times alleging that, you know, the same story we've been hearing so, for so long, Kelly, which is, you know, these chatbots scraping uh, articles from the New York Times, using it without any kind of compensation. Uh, and the Times put a bunch of examples they found in this lawsuit. You know, here it is saying, you know, here, here's a really good example, a story about yellow cabs. All that red text you're seeing is copied text verbatim, basically ChatGPT effectively plagiarizing uh, New York Times articles, which it couldn't have done unless it was trained. This is uh, this uh, phenomenon in AI called memorization that mm. a lot of people think may, not, may or may not exist, but we have a really good example of it happening right here. Um, we have not heard anything from OpenAI and Microsoft since this news broke. Uh, but the allegations are really tough, and this is not going to be the last lawsuit no, for sure. Already investors are jumping ahead and saying, okay, we'll take a company like a Meta or a Google, a YouTube, where that content, they don't have to worry about the output being uh, copyright infringement exactly. you know, versus evaluation, which we're talking about even this week, of an open AI, and Anthropic, any of these kinds of AI players who are going to have this to contend with. Right, and then we have that report last week in the New York Times that Apple's kind of taking the opposite approach. Whatever AI thing they may or may not be working on, uh, the New York Times reported, they're talking directly to the media companies, offering to pay them in advance for training their models on, on that copyrighted material. Whereas you have Microsoft and others who just, uh, Microsoft OpenAI and others who have done the opposite, you know, kind of, oh, asking forgiveness, not permission. It reminds me a lot of like the Napster days or the YouTube days early on. You used to be able to go on YouTube and find full episodes of, you know, TV shows and totally. so forth. Google really had to work through that and solve those copyright issues. You can see something similar emerging here. Here because, I mean, it is very clear that the, these uh, chatbots are trained on a lot of copyrighted material. Then the legal question becomes how much is fair use, how much is, you know, could be monetized and so forth. I would also say the New York Times in their own story about their own lawsuit mentioned that uh, New York Times tried to have a sit down as early as April of this year with OpenAI, with Microsoft saying, how can we work this out and make this work together? It didn't really work out. Imagine if it could be a big revenue source for some of these legacy media oh, companies 100%. as well. That's what they want for them. sure. Totally. Uh, more next hour. Steve, thank Thanks. you. Steve Kovac. Coming up, consumer staples are one of the worst performing sectors this year. But Bank of America told us last month they're seeing some signs of recovery and center store names like Kraft and McCormick share of both up nearly 5% in the past month. And that analyst tells us what 2024 will bring next. Amid all the recession talk, 2023 was supposed to have been the year of the safety play, but both healthcare and staples are among the worst performing sectors in the market. And the center of the food store stocks got hit particularly hard. Shares of Smucker, Hormel, Campbell Soup all down more than 20 percent as product demand dwindled. And thanks, part, thanks in part to a lack of pricing power as companies tried to offset inflation. But my next guest was getting constructive on some of these names when he joined us here last month. Back for more is Peter Galbo. He's a food and beverage analyst at B of A. Peter, it's good to see you again. And we, we were talking about kind of incrementally going from more negative to maybe seeing some glimmers. Are those glimmers growing stronger? Yeah, thanks, Kelly. And uh, Happy New Year uh, upcoming to you guys. Uh, look, I, I think what we're starting to see uh, in some of the data is a continuation of, of what we spoke about last month. And so moving from maybe that negative position to, to slightly more positive, although we're not out of the woods yet, um, some encouraging signs certainly that we saw 
in some of the data around Thanksgiving. Uh, we're still waiting on the Christmas data to come out, which will be here uh, in another week or so. Um, and, and, and really what we're seeing out of the consumer, I think at this point, is, is a little bit of improvement, probably still not there yet, uh, and that they're delaying that purchase, particularly around holidays, really right up until the week before uh, the holiday events are occurring. So kind of not wanting to plan too much ahead, waiting to the last minute, that kind of thing. But it's interesting what you said about the consumer maybe looking incrementally more positive. Why do you think that is? Look, I, I think that as the price increases, and, and we've talked about you know 30% pricing that's gone in for a lot of these packaged food companies over the past three years, as that's starting to uh, sunset or anniversary in full, you're getting a, a little bit more promotional cadence around, again, some of those big holiday activities. I think as you turn the page to 2024, you're going to see a lot more merchandising activities. And so whether that's end cap displays, uh, better deals, um, more merchandising efforts on behalf of the food companies, you could start to see you know, these volumes that are off of a very low base start to maybe get back to flat and even potentially positive. What are we talking about in terms of some price pressures that you're seeing in the, in the stocks that you cover? And when do you think we're going to hit a bottom there? I, I think from a price contribution standpoint, you know, we're, we're basically there. Um, the last round of price increases that a lot of these companies took were in the October timeframe of, of 2022. So again, you've largely lapped a, a lot of that, maybe a little bit here and there on, on certain products, but we're getting close to a point where that, you know, that contribution from price is really going to go to, to zero. Um, and again, you know, as, as you lap some of these headwinds, think about things like uh, you know, the increased SNAP benefits that were in place at this time last year, as you start to lap those, they even potentially become tailwinds into, into the spring of 2024. Hmm. That's when you could really start to see, I think, a more material pickup in, in the volume side. Would you stick with the names you mentioned last time, Kraft, uh, I think uh, MKC, would you stick with those names? Yeah, I, I think that McCormick is, is particularly interesting. You know, it's lagged quite a bit more than Kraft. You know, Kraft, we, we still tend, tend to like heading into next year. I think another interesting one that, that kind of sticks out and, and you know, we're, we're neutral rated, but, I, you know, it's, it's been a big debate stock amongst our investors has been Kelanova. Um, this is, a, you know, a company that's lagged but has decent brands and, again, goes back to that theme I, I spoke about of, uh, you know, more merchandising activity that we'd expect kind of into the first quarter of 24. All right, Peter, thanks. We appreciate your time today. Thanks, Kelly. Peter Galbo from B of A Securities. Markets hanging on to its gains. Dow's up 80 points, little off those session highs we saw after the bond auction top of the hour. That does it for the exchange. And up next on Power Lunch, we'll pick it up with Taylor Morrison, TriPoint, and KB Holmes, all at or near all-time highs, although one analyst says the gains are already in the stocks. He'll tell us why. Tyler is back. He's getting ready. I'll join him on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Jake from State Farm here, hanging out with Mel's Mow and Grow. Mel chose State Farm for small business insurance because his local agent is a small business owner, too. So she knew how to help him personalize his policies. And now he's rolling in the green. Like a, like a good neighbor. Guys, I'm trying to do the line. Oh, sorry, Jake. It's all good. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.